Good afternoon, and welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forum's Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And now with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Uh, last few weeks, uh, we've certainly placed uh, a lot of focus on the internal political uh, dynamics. I thought today we'd focus a little bit more on diplomacy um, and what exactly is going on with this new government, uh, a government which, as we've spoken about, it has major ideological uh, differences between the various parties, between the various leaders, especially in the diplomatic and security arenas. So let's focus a little bit on, uh, on the diplomatic. And I'd just like to sort of take us back a little bit to the Netanyahu era. During the Netanyahu era, 12 years, it could be argued, and this is something that I said uh, quite a number of times, that uh, Israel's parliamentary democracy, uh, where prime minister is the first amongst equals in a cabinet, was largely left behind to a certain extent and replaced with something closer to a presidential system. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that over the years, Netanyahu uh, took control very much of almost every decision, every major decision uh, in the state of Israel, uh, whatever uh, area, arena was, was in. Uh, he made sure that his ministers knew that he had to take uh, credit if there was a big press conference on the opening, the launching or success or achievement, he was very much involved, gave the impression, and it was more the impression, it was the reality that he was very much involved and no major decisions could be taken without him. Uh, that was no more keenly felt, arguably, than in the diplomatic arena, probably arguably since 2015, uh, when Victor Liebman uh, left the position of foreign minister, there hasn't been a powerful foreign minister who has led an independent or semi-independent has, has, has been given the right to lead on diplomatic issues. If we look at some of the uh, characters that were foreign ministers, a lot of them were either beholden to Netanyahu or uh, sort of sidelined to a certain extent. And diplomacy was certainly led by uh, Netanyahu uh, pretty much across the board. Um, what this government is trying to do, will have to do, just because of the reality and the nature of uh, the makeup of it, it will each minister obviously will have to coordinate uh, with the larger cabinet, but will have a, a larger amount of autonomy. Certainly our current foreign minister, who's also the alternate prime minister, Yael Lapid, will have uh, greater autonomy than any foreign minister probably in a decade, uh, largely because he uh, represents the head of the largest party um, he is the alternate prime minister, and it was agreed very much up front that, uh, to a certain extent, this is an oversimplification, but uh, for the purposes of the discussion, to a certain extent, Naftali Bennett uh, is in charge or leading, let's say, on internal issues, and uh, Yeh Lapid is leading on uh, external issues, relations uh, abroad, and that's certainly a sea change from what we saw uh, under previous governments. And uh, that has meant that uh, Yela Pitt, who's certainly uh, to the left of Naftali Bennett on a lot of diplomatic and security issues, has been the face uh, that has been seen, if not uh, uh, you know, personally, 
uh, certainly in conversations with Washington, with Brussels and many other capitals around the world. Um, what we've seen uh, with this new sort of setup is a, certainly a different, a new adjustment, a reset, let's say, in Israel's relations with certainly the West. Um, not to say that I would argue that Yair Lapid, Natalie Bennett, even uh, Benjamin Netanyahu hold dr drastically different issues on some of the major issues, uh, some of the major challenges on Iran, on the Iran agreement, on the JCPO. I don't think there's too much daylight in how they see it uh, on the Palestinian issue. While Lapid is more of a supporter of a two-state solution, he's also of the mind that it can't happen at the moment because of the realities, uh, specifically the Palestinian leadership. Uh, and on many other issues in the diplomatic arena, there's not too much daylight. But what there is, is an emphasis on uh, the way uh, diplomatic relations are being held. Uh, in diplomacy, the, there's the art of saying no. Uh, Netanyahu is far more blunt about saying no. He said no to the JCPOA under Barack Obama, famously speaking in Congress against the wishes of the administration, and sort of to a certain extent, if I want to be blunt, say, uh, thumbing his nose, to a certain extent at uh, uh, certain governments around the world, especially on the Iran issue. We saw that the JCPO went ahead, obviously when there was a more favorable administration under the Trump uh, presidency, uh, they left the JCPOA, but it's clear that one of the uh, legs of uh, the Biden presidency is to return to the JCPOA in one form or another. What the Lapid diplomatic plan has done, rather than saying no, because he's come out and said, on many occasions he's against the JCPOA and the return of the Americas to the JCPOA, their plan has been not to say no, but to say yes, but. And that's been also on the Palestinian issue and pretty much other issues. Uh, in diplomacy, they, they kind of lead to the same place, uh, no and yes, but, but it's done in a more artful way. What I mean by that is, uh, you know, when, when you say no, no, no to everything, uh, the other side just sort of shuts itself off to a certain extent, closes its ears and understands this is not something, this is not someone we can work with, it's not someone we can compromise too much with. Lapid's uh, art of sort of saying yes, but to the JCPO, it means that I wouldn't go as far as to say he has a seat at the table, but they certainly are more inclined to listen to uh, Israel's concerns. And we've seen that by uh, some of the high level meetings that's taken place recently. On another level, uh, yeah, Lapid, uh, Foreign Minister Lapid was in uh, Brussels uh, this week and he met there a more receptive ear again. Uh, a lot of people are talking about reset. I don't think it's any surprise to say that many Western uh, nations breathed a sigh of relief uh, that Netanyahu is no longer in office. Part of it was ideological, part of it was personal. They didn't like uh, the way he dealt with them, the way he did things, uh, but certainly they, they, they saw him as a, an ideological uh, block uh, to, to much of what they wanted to do. And I can tell you that the discussions in Brussels were certainly under a more favorable atmosphere. Uh, what I hear from them is that the usual, the sort of, you know, Europe, the EU and Europe in general split up into what's been called old Europe, you know, the, the Western Europe, uh, European powers, Germany, France, uh, the UK, etc. And then there's new Europe, which is the Visegrad countries, the many of the countries that were under part of the former Soviet Union, Czech Republic, Hungary, uh, etc. And those were countries that uh, Netanyahu certainly uh, created very good relations with and they became uh, his sort of blocking 
force within the EU, because as we know, the EU likes to do everything uh, together, have a unified voice on its foreign policy. Obviously, it's not always able to. So if you can manage to peel away one or two countries, then you can block uh, the harshness of certain uh, resolutions and policies, uh, certainly, uh, as it were, towards Israel. But uh, what we did also hear from the uh, meetings uh, in Brussels is that there's still some very uh, powerful countries from, let's say, old Europe that still believe a two-state solution is around the corner. Now, again, it's, it, it should be clear that uh, Yair Lapid is not uh, uh, antagonistic to a two-state solution. He still believes that that is the end game, uh, that the Palestinian state is the best solution uh, to the conflict. But he, like most Israelis, does not believe that it's possible at this point partly because of the Palestinian Authority led by uh, Mahmoud Abbas and because of the reality uh, in, in the region. Um, but unfortunately, there's still this, uh, these voices coming from old Europe that still believe that uh, Israel should be offering a Palestinian state on all of the territory over the green line tomorrow, yesterday. So that's obviously going to be a great challenge. Uh, but certainly there is a new atmosphere in the international diplomacy um, and yeah, Lapid is certainly trying to move ahead and uh, trying to take advantage of that. And uh, Naftali Bennett is uh, taking a step back. Where there was a bit of problem was um, on Tisha B'Av, which is the 9th of Av, which is the saddest day in the, the Jewish calendar, uh, that where, we, where Jews around the world mourn uh, the destruction of the two temples, uh, which took place on Sunday. Uh, many Jews want to go up to Temple Mount to really bring you know, an actualization to their mourning. And it, there's nothing rare about that. I think it was about 1,500 Israelis who wanted to go up. Um, but there was calls uh, amongst the Palestinian Authority, Hamas and, and other players uh, to try and get as many Palestinians up on the mount as possible, to try and block this, to try and create uh, problems. They knew about this. This is nothing new, Jews going up. But what has been new in recent months is the fact that Jews who are legally, or let's just say under the agreement with Jordan, not no non-Muslims are allowed to pray on the mount. They're allowed to visit in, during certain times. They have to be uh, under police escort, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, there's been stories in recent years of someone even mumbling a couple of words and being uh, detained by the police. So the fact that Jews are now uh, sort of under the radar allowed to uh, pray uh, I don't know exactly what format. I myself have not gone up. I, I know some people who have, but the fact that uh, the police are being far more liberal with allowing some of the uh, Jewish prayer means that the situation is changing, uh, perhaps with a nod and a wink. Uh, as we know, Jordan uh, are the custodians uh, to a certain extent on the Temple Mount and anything that happens there, they, they become very, very involved. Um, and basically after there was some sort of conflagration between the, the, uh, the Arabs who were there and the Jews or the police, I would say rather. Um, Naftali Bennett, Prime Minister, Prime Minister Bennett put out a statement where you know, he, he talked about the right of uh, Muslims to, to go and visit and to pray. And he also said that there's also freedom of prayer for Jews. Now that, caught, that set off a firestorm uh, abroad and at home. Basically, you can imagine the Jordanians really went mad about this. The Turks always looking for an opportunity to try and place themselves into uh, the issue of Jerusalem, but also even internally, Ram, the Islamist party within the government also made its feelings known on that. 
And we saw not too long after that, a sort of walk back by the prime minister where he said he didn't mean uh, freedom of worship, he meant freedom to, uh, to, to visit. Um, but what we do know is much of the calming down in the region, uh, especially with the Jordanians, uh, took place uh, under the guise of uh, Foreign Minister Yair Lapid. So we saw uh, how this government can uh, get itself into trouble with the disparate voices, but there seems to be a mechanism uh, that seems to be able to work, where, as I said, Naftali Bennett deals very much with what's going on at home, and Yair Lapid tries to uh, source out the diplomatic sphere, and there was a lot of uh, commentators who are sort of aghast that uh, Naftali Bennett wasn't involved directly uh, in the discussions with Jordan and others. America obviously got involved and others, and it was led by Yella Pitt, but that really should be the natural way of things. The foreign minister should lead on that. Um, but we've just become so used to the prime minister becoming all-encompassing that we expect our prime minister to be all-encompassing. Uh, so we have to get uh, used to this new reality. Um, I know my time is uh, running out before questions and I wanna give you lots of time for questions, but I think I'd be, uh, it'd be remiss if I didn't <clears throat> mention the whole uh, event surrounding Ben and Jerry's. So what actually happened? We've heard about Ben and Jerry's decided to boycott Israel. What actually happened? And it's actually quite complicated because there are many layers to this. Um, ben and Jerry's was brought up by Unilever uh, a number of years ago but the Ben and Jerry's in Israel is under uh, a contract, has been under contract for 25, 30 years under a local distributor. And in fact, they even make it locally. I, I believe it's one of the only places in the world where Ben and Jerry's is made. But the Ben and Jerry's board, which is uh, supposed to be independent from Unilever, is run by someone who apparently, according to her Twitter feed at least, is rabidly anti-Israel and is a supporter of the BD, uh, uh, BDS movement. Uh, and and uh, a year and a half ago, they voted to uh, boycott at least uh, Israel over the green line and wouldn't allow any uh, uh, selling of their products over the green line. What they wanted to do, apparently, is actually even uh, perhaps even not sell their products in Israel at all. Uh, and they became, the, the Ben and Jerry's uh, board in America became a vain sense when Unilever put out uh, a press release in their name saying, we are not going to be selling anymore over the green line, but we are going to be continuing in Israel. Apparently that part of the sentence in sense then, as I said, run by some very left-wing elements uh, led by someone who has, at least on their Twitter feed, who has expressed support for the BDS movement. That left the Israeli distributor high and dry. Uh, they still have another year and a half left of it, but it's unclear exactly what will happen. What is important uh, from going back to the diplomatic arena is Yair Lapid has tried to, again, also through the uh, Israel's ambassador to Washington, Gilad Adan, has written, uh, they've written to the governors of all states which have anti-BDS laws. There are, I believe, uh, something like 30 states which have laws which uh, outlaw and ban um, uh, any, uh, they basically can take measures against a company which uh, take the line of boycotting Israel or, I mean, that, that depends from state to state, also including territories that Israel holds, which means over the green line. So what Israel is doing is trying to, uh, you know, bring these laws up and, and saying to these governors, you know, uh, Ben and Jerry's with this uh, particular uh, action are contravening this law and action needs to be taken. 
it's very unlikely they're going to suddenly ban Ben and Jerry's from a whole state. But Unilever has, you know, uh, there are many pension funds within these states that are invested in Unilever. So there is quite a lot of leverage that can be used. And we saw a couple of years ago, I believe it was now, that Airbnb also tried to do something similar and said that they would not list uh, any of its properties in Jewish settlements. And after quite a big outcry, but most importantly, this legal route was taken, Airbnb had to sort of backtrack and continues to this day to list properties in the settlements because of the threat of legal action. So it will be interesting to see what happens. There's a lot of uh, commentary around this, whether they will backtrack like Airbnb or whether there is ideologues there who actually has control of this issue. So it's a real test case. The BDS, uh, the anti-Israel crowd is seeing this as a big victory. Um, and they really believe that this is their sort of first major victory after the Abraham Accords, which gave them a big loss, which really put them on the back step. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how this plays out. And with that, I'm happy to answer any questions on this or any other topics. Thank you so much. I have to admit I had a pint yesterday before seeing the news. Um, so I guess on that topic, Anthony Field asked, should I stop eating Ben and Jerry's? <laughs> it's a good question. Um, there's a debate here in Israel. And the first reaction was, you know, throw it away. Uh, we, we saw pictures of Victor Liebman with a different ice cream. We saw uh, uh, what's her name, uh, another minister throwing it in the, in, in the trash. Uh, in Israel, it's basically uh, considered good to buy Ben and Jerry's because it is a distributor who actually fought with Ben and Jerry's to make sure that he could continue selling all over Israel, including over the Green Line. And that's why he lost his contract, apparently. So a lot of Israelis are saying we should support the local distributor. Now abroad, that's under Ben and Jerry's, the international company. So I'm not going to tell anyone what to do. It's all a personal uh, particular preference. Um, but the, a lot of Israelis are saying we should buy Ben and Jerry's in Israel because we help the Israeli distributor who fought, uh, you know, not to not to have any part of Israel boycotted, but internationally that's uh, run by a board which is uh, chaired by a woman who is deeply anti-Israel. But again, I'm not going to make any decisions for any particular individual on that issue. Thank you. And a follow-up question on that is uh, from Arlene Roman. Will Israeli authorities revoke the kosher certification on Ben and Jerry's ice cream? Um, again, the, the issue in Israel is that people want to support the distributor. There are, there are people who still haven't quite understood the whole ins and outs, but more and more they're trying to uh, they're trying to find ways. Interestingly enough, there are some. I saw an Australian kashrut authority uh, basically remove its kashrut, which actually is less meaningful because the kashrut actually comes from America, so it's kosher anyway. Um, I see some stores in New York and elsewhere around America have kosher stores or stores run by Jews or Israelis have basically said that they will no longer or severely limit their sales of uh, Ben and Jerry's. But in Israel, as I said, uh, any boycott hurts the Israeli factory, hurts Israeli citizens who, you know, that's their bread and butter. And in a year and a half, they don't even know what they're going to do. So there's a push now in Israel to buy Ben and Jerry's, but they say abroad, it's a whole different uh, question. Thank you. So we have quite a few questions coming in on that, but I'll switch mm -hmm. gears here. Uh, Rabbi Joel Schwartzman asks, can you comment on the missiles that were fired from Lebanon? 
Um, not too much, except for what was uh, in the public arena. Uh, we still don't know exactly. The assumption is that it was Palestinian groups. Um, I saw I saw someone report that because it was exactly in the time of prayer near a festival, then it wouldn't be in a religious group like Hezbollah, whereas it's probably more likely to be a secular Palestinian group. You know, whether this happens without Hezbollah's knowledge is unlikely. You know, uh, Hezbollah does basically control the south of Lebanon. And again, we know that Hezbollah doesn't act too much, but certainly not with uh, actions like that without uh, Iran. Uh, but we don't know exactly. No one has taken, to the best of my knowledge, no one has taken credit for it. Um, but from what I've read, it seems to be uh, uh, Palestinian groups, which also have a presence in Lebanon. Thank you. From Stephen Orlo, what is the reaction to Lapid conflating anti-Semitism with all forms of bigotry and racism? That definitely got a lot of pushback, especially on the uh, on the opposition side, uh, amongst Likud and people like that. Um, they felt that you know there is a certain unique element to anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism isn't just another form of racism or discrimination, and we played into our enemies' hands by just basically saying it's another, it's just it's just on the same level as other discriminations and shouldn't be seen as unique or separate to. Uh, so you got a lot of uh, pushback from that, even, even on the sort of more, let's just say moderate uh, right on that. Uh, so again, like everything that's happening in Israel, there's a massive partisan nature to it, regardless of where some of the parties would be without this government. There seems to be very much anything the, the coalition does is, you know, is, is attacked by the, the opposition and, and vice versa. Thank you. So we have a question in, um, I am appalled by Israel's decision to sell cell phone spying technology must, uh, at all, much less to dictatorships around the world. Um, what exactly is the Israelis' thoughts on this matter? So first of all, it should be understood this is not the state of Israel. These are private companies which are selling technologies uh, to countries. And then these countries against apparently, from my understanding, uh, are using these technologies not according to the agreements. Uh, the agreements that they signed with some of these companies and NSO, which has made the news, is certainly not the only one. Um, they basically have agreements with some countries. Listen, if you're only going to sell to liberal democracies, then you've got a much close, I'm not justifying it, but I'm just saying a much smaller client base. Uh, but what they do is they have agreements with these countries, these security firms. And again, these are private individuals uh, who sell these technologies and they sell them to these countries, these leaderships, these regimes. And the agreements are that they will only use them for certain purposes, but obviously from what we've seen in the news uh, in recent days, it seems that some of these countries have gone uh, over uh, and beyond. But again, I think it's unfair to say that this is only Israelis doing it. I know for a fact that there are many Americans, many Europeans, many others who are doing it. Israel is seen as a market leader because Israel has a very sophisticated high-tech uh, security intelligence uh, element to it. So a lot of people, when they leave the army, they leave intelligence, they leave the security apparatus, you know, they have a great understanding. Uh, and so they are very well respected in that field around the world. And the overwhelming majority of them are completely legitimate and don't get involved with any shady stuff. In this particular situation, we still don't know exactly what's happening. I'm sure there'll be 
many investigation, but it's, it's really important uh, to state that this is not the state of Israel. These are not uh, any officials. These are not any government uh, people. These are not people who are in, currently in the army or intelligence. These are private individuals. Understood. Thank you for making that distinction. Uh, from Carrie Hildebrand, why did the campaign to vaccinate all Israelis between 12 and 18 years old peter out after about 40% of the population was vaccinated? There's a number of reasons. First of all, when, when it was first launched, uh, we didn't have the Delta variant as strong. Um, so a lot of people were sort of thinking to themselves, parents, why do I need to take this risk, even though there's absolutely tiny, tiny minimal risk, but why take it when A, children don't get ill, and B, it seems like we're fighting or ending uh, coronavirus. Um, there is a feeling amongst uh, young people, as it is all around the world, wherever they're vaccinating uh, uh, youth, that they are you know, indestructible, that they don't need this. Um, and the facts, to a certain extent, bear that out, not to say they don't need it, uh, because there are rare uh, occurrences where young people do get coronavirus in a bad and serious way, but it's, again, tiny, tiny uh, decimal points uh, of the population. Um, and it's, 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 it's quite simply, I mean, there are about 40%, I believe, of that population, which isn't terrible. And each day there are a few thousand more. I myself, just to give my personal thing, I got my, my two children within that uh, age bracket. Uh, it's actually 12 to 15. I think you said eight to, 15, eight to 15, it's 12 to 15. Um, I got my two kids within that age uh, bracket uh, vaccinated. They're now fully vaccinated. I decided it was the best thing to do. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's a combination of people thinking that they don't need it, that the risk uh, is just outweighed by the risk of uh, potentially some of the side effects. Um, and I think uh, kids being kids, I think uh, there's a big part of that. They really did try and get them to vaccinate, they try to get all celebrities, singers, uh, to try and get them to vaccinate. But at the end of the day, if you, you know, there's no force uh, vaccination in Israel, so every person makes the choice, whether it's a parent themselves or the children, and uh, that's where we are today. Sounds good. Uh, from Reuven Hawk, how would you rate your your Lapid's job as foreign minister to date? Well, the government's only been around, I believe, five weeks. Um, so I think largely the jury's out. Um, as I said, I, I personally think that the uh, uh, yes but uh, policy of diplomacy is much more effective than saying no. Uh, someone who spent six years in the foreign ministry, I certainly saw that that is more effective and that will bring you to the table at least. Whether you'll be able to affect change, that's all another thing because every country obviously has their own uh, interests. At the end of the day, that, that's what that's what diplomacy is about. Every country has their own interests, whether you can make some subtle changes here and there, whether you can uh, change policy here or there, that depends whether you, you, you're being listened to. If you're not being listened to at all, and there were certain leaders around the world who just simply did not listen to Netanyahu, I'm oversimplifying, obviously, um, then he's, he's far less able to get something done. I'll, get, I'll give an example, uh, which apparently is coming out today or came out earlier, is that the Biden administration wants to reopen uh, the consulate, the Palestinian consulate in Jerusalem, which was closed by Trump. That's something that Biden promised. That's something which he certainly would like to do. But now it seems that he's uh, under the request from Bennett and Lapid, he's put it off at least uh, till later in the year. 
according to news reports until after the budget, because again, this government really wants to try and put issues where they, which, which are dividing issues amongst them, off the back burner, at least until after the budget, because as I said last week, all eyes are on the budget. That is the, the primary goal at this point of this government. So any of these type of issues that can be put off uh, until after that uh, is certainly welcome from that point of view. One issue which uh, I didn't mention, which is an issue which will have to be dealt with at least within the next six weeks, is uh, the, the dismantlement of Khan al-Akhmar is a Bedouin encampment uh, that was created uh, relatively recently. Um, and the, the Supreme Court said that it can and should be dismantled. It was built illegally. <coughs> the Netanyahu government kept on saying that it will dismantle it and didn't. And the Supreme Court kept on saying, you have to. Uh, it now ruled today that it, this is the last uh, delay it's giving and a decision has to be taken within the six week, six, next week's week. And that's going to be very difficult because as you can imagine, Ram, the Islamist party is very against it. Um, so they're gonna really have to work very, very hard to try and find some solution there uh, to get out of that because that could really uh, inflame the government. Again, I don't think it will bring the government down, but it certainly is a major obstacle that's coming up. And real quick on that, Ron asks, uh, since you brought up Ron, 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 sorry, <laughs> question from Ron, question about Ron. Uh, how much control will the Arab party of the major bloc, I know they're from supporting from the outside, but how much control will they have over national policies, particularly Temple Mountain mosque noise issues? Ram is in the government. If you're talking about the joint list, that's outside the government. I assume you're talking about Ram. Ram is a part of the government. Yes, sorry. Uh, uh, just the Arab parties. Uh, right. Support. So there's only one Arab party in the government. The other joint list is outside of the government. Um, Ram, again, I think uh, it's not going to be a major player, a major uh, decider on some of these issues, but it is one that has to be consulted. And the government knows that it has to find a compromise because if, as, as I've said many times, you know, it, this, this coalition is on a knife edge, it's 61. So the Ram party is four seats. So without that, they'd have no majority for anything. So every party has to be worked uh, with very carefully. Their uh, issues have to be taken into account. They have to be consulted. So in that respect, they certainly will get a, a, a big say, uh, but obviously they won't have it their own way because there are many other parties which also have their issues and have their ideologies and their policies. So, so far, as I've said before, on the whole, amongst the leaders, uh, it's worked quite well. There have been good compromises. There's been a few setbacks, but those are largely individual and certain mistakes. You know, this is, uh, uh, to a certain extent, teething issues of a government uh, where people, the vast majority of which have never been in the government, uh, a large part of the coalition have never even sat in the in, in the Knesset. So there are teething issues, there are problems. They have uh, a coalition chairwoman who is really learning as she goes along. So there's going to be uh, some mistakes. Um, so I think that's really, really where we are. There, there's, there, there needs to be a lot of consultation. There needs to be a, a lot of compromise and each issue will really, they're, they're gonna go by issue by issue. They have, you know, they, they try to work through coalition uh, agreements beforehand, but again, you can't uh, sort of foresee every single issue that's going to come up. And they try and meet all the leaders of the parties every week and try and uh, foresee what's going to happen, at least in that week, and try and come up with solutions. But again, 
don't forget the leader may say one thing, but then there may be other people in the party who want to make a name for themselves and may threaten or vote differently. So there's a lot of challenges. Um, as I said, amongst the leaders, things are going relatively well. But again, any one person can decide that they're going to go against the coalition and then they're in trouble. All right, well, thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Thank you again for taking time to update us this week. Uh, for our viewers, please join us Friday for the continuation of our new series featuring project directors from the Middle East Forum and specialists in their respective fields. Thank you all for joining us and hope you have a great day.